you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Again, that's Matthew chapter 24. Uh, it's been right about around a month now since uh, the last time we were in this section of Matthew that I've entitled The Returning King. Uh, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off in Matthew 24, 1-3. If you've been with us, then you know that Jesus has excoriated the scribes and Pharisees in the middle of the temple in what would become the last words that He would ever speak publicly to Israel before His death. That's just happened. Uh, In the climax of that rebuke, he passes sentence on Israel, saying, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will become upon this generation." Basically, Jesus tells Israel that God is going to punish them severely for their refusal to believe His message. That's the final thing that He says publicly to the nation of Israel before His death. And He says it right there in the temple on the final Tuesday before His crucifixion. And now this happens. Matthew 24, 1-3. Matthew says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered to them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of Your coming? and of the close of the age. There are various moments during the course of Jesus' ministry when His disciples appear to be completely oblivious to the moment that they're witnessing. One thinks, for instance, of Peter, who immediately after confessing his belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then proceeds to rebuke Him after Jesus begins to speak of His coming suffering and death. And then, of course, there's the moment shortly after that when upon seeing seeing Jesus in His unveiled glory, conversing with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter suggests that they erect three tents for them to dwell in. One thinks again of James and John asking Jesus if He wanted them to command fire to come down and consume the Samaritans who refused to welcome Him. Or of the disciples assuming that when Jesus warned them about the leaven of the Pharisees, that He was giving them instructions about the procurement of actual physical bread. And of course, this after he, they had witnessed Him feed the 5,000 along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps best of all, we're told of multiple instances when even as Jesus is explaining the suffering that He's about to undergo in service to mankind, the disciples, strangely enough, seize that as an opportunity to bicker among themselves over who is the greatest and most worthy of esteem and honor. The disciples often appear very slow, very slow to pick up on the main points of Jesus' teaching. And and to the degree that more than once they come across as completely tone deaf to the moment they're in. Jesus will perform some powerfully symbolic miracle or He'll teach some profoundly revolutionary concept and the disciples will respond with such a completely 
backwards assessment of the situation that you almost start to wonder just how Jesus was able to keep teaching these men without occasionally lashing out in frustration. Quite often, the disciples just don't seem to get it. And that's what we have here at the beginning of Matthew 24. It's another one of those famously oblivious moments where something remarkable is taking place in the disciples' presence and it all just immediately goes right over their head. They completely miss it. They don't understand the profound significance of what Jesus is saying and doing. This comes in verses 1 and 2 where as Jesus is leaving the temple, the disciples have the audacity to remark on the beauty of the temple. That might not be apparent from what you're seeing here in Matthew, that the disciples are actually commenting on the stunning beauty of the temple, but that's what's revealed to us in the Gospel of Mark. According to Mark, the disciples are leaving, and as they leave, they exclaim to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones! And what wonderful buildings! They're just awestruck at the beauty of Herod's temple. And for good reason. I mean, say what you will about Herod the Great, but he appears to have been an absolutely brilliant architect. There's no question about that. One commentator notes that with an area equal to 35 football fields, or one-sixth of the total area of Jerusalem, the temple complex was at this time the largest structure in the Roman world. Many of the stones used to build the temple were equally massive. For example, one stone still sitting on the foundation of the western wall is estimated to weigh more than 500 tons. It's estimated that many of the other stones used to build the temple would have weighed somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 tons. And the temple's magnitude was matched only by its beauty. To quote Josephus, quote, "...being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of the purest white." Obviously, we're talking about an absolutely breathtaking building here. In fact, the temple complex was so stunning in both beauty and magnitude that it would later cause one rabbi to remark, it used to be said, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. To these Galilean hayseeds, who probably never traveled far enough outside of Israel to see anything that would have come close to rivaling Herod's temple, this would have been especially true. It doesn't matter how many times they might have traveled up to Jerusalem before this time to see the temple. There's still just nothing like it in their eyes. And so they're absolutely mesmerized. And as they leave the temple, they express their astonishment to Jesus. They say, look, Jesus, what a breathtaking building this is. And it's almost like they've not been there to witness anything that's just taken place over the past couple of days. I mean, when Jesus first entered the city, he actually paused and wept over the destruction that was soon to take place there. Now, Matthew doesn't record that fact for us, but Luke does. He says that during the triumphal entry, while all the people were still hailing him as the Messiah, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And while the Pharisees were there in their midst telling Jesus, teacher, rebuke these disciples, make them stop. While all that is going on, Luke says that Jesus, when he drew near to the city, wept over it, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make our peace, or make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Essentially, he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem that would occur in 70 AD, exactly as it would happen. And he says this on the way into the city at the beginning of the week. So clearly, Jesus knows how this is all going to turn out, even from the beginning. The crowds are welcoming him here on Sunday, but Israel is actually nowhere closer to accepting their Messiah now than they were at any other point in his ministry. The people are going to reject their king, and they're going to suffer the consequences for it. Again, Jesus is saying this on the way into Jerusalem. The week started with that declaration. Jerusalem Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. And then what happens on Monday? Jesus surveys the temple on Sunday night, and on the way into the city the next day, He takes time to stop and curse a fig tree for its failure to bear fruit. This would have been a highly symbolic act, because Israel was famously depicted as a fig tree in the Old Testament. Of course, He then proceeds to enter the temple and cleanse it of its hypocritical worship, while declaring, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Basically, he quotes Jeremiah 7.11, which was a passage in which God responds to Judah's hypocrisy by promising to desolate the temple. Jesus is quoting that passage as he cleanses the temple on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus and the disciples journey back into Jerusalem again. On their way into the city, the disciples observe the fig tree Jesus cursed, and it has withered. And they marvel over it. Powerful demonstration of the judgment that would come upon Israel. And then as they enter the temple, they're immediately greeted by the religious leadership who, out of hatred for Jesus and in fear of the crowds who love Him, try to publicly discredit His ministry in a religious debate in the temple. Jesus not only wins this debate, but He's so incensed by the religious leaders and hard-heartedness that He lashes out to them in this series of woes right there in the middle of the temple for everyone to see. I mean, the animosity between these two groups, Jesus on the one hand, and the power structure of every significant political group in Israel on the other, couldn't be more plain. A full-on fight is taking place in the temple as each side maneuvers for the legal and political advantage. Again, Jesus wins the fight. And in the aftermath... Understanding that they're not going to stop, knowing that there is already murderous intention in their heart, that they're going to kill him before the week is out, Jesus declares in what really has to be the very pinnacle of fury that we see throughout his ministry, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. You hypocrites, do you know what's going to happen to you? All the blood of the martyrs is going to come down on you. You're going to be guilty of all of it. And you're going to pay. And then in the very same breath, as he considers the impact of this devastating judgment, he cries out, it would appear in grief, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, You've missed your chance. And now devastation is coming. 
And as much as he's furious at the Pharisees for their unbelief, it appears that he's yet grief-stricken at the thought of what this all means for his people. And so we get a scene that seems to parallel the one that occurred as he entered the city. The anger turns to sorrow. And at least it would appear Jesus leaves the temple with a heavy heart and great sorrow over the devastation that is soon to visit his people. Like the thing that's on Jesus' mind as he leaves the temple is the approximately million or so people who are going to die 40 years from now during the siege of Jerusalem. All because of what's about to transpire in the next few days. And then as he leaves, in the midst of all of that, his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, can you believe what a beautiful temple this is? I mean, you want to talk about a dagger to the heart. All all Jesus is thinking about is the terrible destruction that's going to visit this city. And the disciples come to him and remark what a wonderful temple it is and how beautifully it adorns this city. You know what this is like? This would be like learning that your spouse has terminal cancer and then coming home and finding a card celebrating your 25th anniversary waiting in your mailbox. It only serves to magnify the grief by highlighting just how much is about to be lost. That's what this comment on the temple is like. It's utterly tone deaf. It's like the disciples have just completely missed everything that Jesus has said and done for the past couple of days. And so Jesus brings it all into focus for them. He says very plainly, you see all these, do you not? He says, I want you to look at this temple again. Take a hard look because I don't want you to miss the significance of what I'm about to tell you. Do you see it all? He says, good, good. And then he drops the bomb. Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Of course, we can only imagine the emotion that would have been expressed when Jesus said these words, but regardless of how he said it, we can know that he apparently said it in such a way that this time the message got through. The disciples understand his point, and I say this because after this declaration, they're quiet for some time. At this point, the significance of what Jesus is contemplating would have finally registered with them because it would require an absolutely Herculean display of might and wrath for a temple of this size and magnitude to be utterly leveled to the ground. So now the disciples are getting it. If the temple is going to be so utterly destroyed in this way, then it must mean that Jerusalem itself is going to be completely demolished, totally annihilated in the process. Again, you can only imagine how quickly this statement would have sobered the disciples as they followed Jesus out of the temple and what horrific thoughts would have been racing through their minds as they tried to piece together how that would all take place. In fact, it would seem that they're so consumed by the consideration of this idea that they're left utterly speechless for the next several minutes because we don't hear them utter another word to Jesus until He's seated on the Mount of Olives just outside the city. And even then, Mark tells us that actually only four of his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are the ones who ask the question in verse 3. And they do so privately. The rest, it would seem, are still trying to wrap their minds around what Jesus has said to them. After leaving the temple, Jesus takes a seat on the Mount of Olives. Matthew doesn't tell us precisely why 
Jesus chose to come and sit here before moving on to where he was staying in Bethany for the evening. As Mark notes in his Gospel, the Mount of Olives sits directly opposite the temple to the east. It even overlooks the temple up on a high mountain with a very deep valley between the two on the way into Jerusalem. And this leads me to think that grief must comprise at least part of the motive here. Jesus finishes this pronouncement predicting the destruction of the temple and then He goes up onto the Mount of Olives and He just sits there overlooking the city. It doesn't appear that His intent at this point is necessarily to teach. And I say this because it's His disciples who approach Him with the question that launches the Olivet Discourse. So I think the more reasonable thing is to conclude that He takes a seat here in order to contemplate the fate of this beloved city. One thinks of Jeremiah, who so paralleled Jesus' ministry that many believe that Jesus was the second coming of Jeremiah. Jeremiah witnessed the first destruction of Jerusalem, and he was so heartbroken over its fate that he became forever known as the weeping prophet. Well, I think that's the picture that we have here. The latter Jeremiah has taken his seat overlooking the city, and as he envisions its destruction in his mind, he's overcome with grief. The disciples are sitting there with him in silence for how long we don't know, until four of them finally muster up the courage to approach Jesus and ask him the question that's on all their minds. They say, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the, of the, the, end of the age? You know, the disciples might have been slow on many things, but not this one. Not this one. Once Jesus begins talking about the devastation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, a deluge of Old Testament passages come flooding to their mind that immediately turn their attention to the future, to the restoration of Israel and to the end of the age. Why this is so, we're going to start to unpack over the next few weeks, but suffice to say for the moment, they rightly surmise that when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. It has something to do with the final judgment that God is going to pour out on the world at the very end of the age. And so sensing that Jesus is already reflecting on these things, they seize the opportunity to ask the Messiah Himself firsthand, when is this going to happen? When are you going to judge the earth? When is the restoration of Israel? This is something that many saints have longed to know, stretching all the way back to the time of Daniel and even further. God promised to restore the earth through a chosen Messiah. Clearly, He was here. So the disciples take their shot and they ask Him, when's it going to happen? Can you let us know? What should we expect? And the ensuing answer, known today as the Olivet Discourse, is the second longest uninterrupted teaching that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, it's second only to the Sermon on the Mount. So a lot of detail here. This is an important passage. The question that the disciples asked that afternoon is the question that seemingly everybody wants to know. How does this all end? Back when I taught Bible class at Grace Community School, I would, I would often conduct a poll uh, and ask my students at the beginning of the semester if they could have me teach on any subject of the Bible at all, what would the subject they'd most want me to teach be? What would they want me to teach more than anything else? And I can tell you that inevitably... of the responses would be something like end times or revelation. They all wanted to know what the Bible predicted about the future of the planet. 
And it's not only Christians that ask this question. You look at the efforts of a vast portion of modern science, and it revolves around this question as well. Scientists don't just practice observational science, meaning they don't just measure and learn how to harness the forces at work in the world today under present conditions. They also practice historical science, meaning they try to understand the conditions of the planet in the universe, what they were like in the past. And really the reason why they do this is because they're interested in the very same questions that have normally been confined to the realm of religion. They want to know, where did we come from? And along with this, where are we going? They're trying to use science to explain the grand story of the universe because they understand the answer to these questions, where do we come from and where are we going, they tend to give shape to the very purpose of our lives. So really, everybody asks this question. I mean, we really only have a very short amount of time on this earth, and though we can maybe come to learn the conclusion of our own story, by the end of our life, it still doesn't feel like we know the whole picture. We don't understand what it all meant. We understand that we're just bit players in this grand drama that's unfolding around us, and death forces us to exit the stage before the final curtain drops. And so we're yearning to know, how does the story end? Where is this all going? You think about that from time to time, don't you? I know I do. I often find myself aching to know, what's the world going to be like in 200 years? Or 300 years? What are my ancestors going to look like? What are they going to do? I want to know the end of the story. We all do. And so I think we get to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, where the disciples asked the Messiah, When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And we all sort of scoot up on the edge of our chairs and lean forward going, Yeah, tell us. Tell us. We want to know too. What's the end of the story? We're just naturally curious to know what the end will be. And and yet I have to confess to you that if there's one portion of this gospel that I dreaded to preach when I picked it out, it was this portion right here, the Olivet Discourse. I did not look forward to having to explain what Jesus says here. And just so you know, that's not because I don't find the subject interesting. I do. I find it very interesting. I'm just like everyone else in this regard. I want to know how the story ends. I think this is a fascinating subject. But I still hesitated at the thought of preaching this passage, and that was because of two reasons. The first is because a study of end times can sometimes be very complex in a hard-to-understand topic. I know that, personally, as I've tried to grasp the, the, this, the basic essence of this doctrine over the years, especially early in my faith, there has probably been no aspect of my theology that I have found more confusing, more challenging, to understand what, precisely, the Scripture teaches than that of end times. And I'm not alone in that. Actually, as I've studied Scripture, I've found comfort in the fact that I'm in good company. The prophet Daniel, for instance, often struggled to understand the meaning of the prophecies that were given to him. The Apostle John likewise indicates in the book of Revelation that he had a hard time understanding at least some of the aspects of the vision that he was given about the end. The fact of the matter is that not all of what is said about the end is meant to be understood, at least not in the ways that we want to understand it. 
Just like the disciples are asking here, we want to have a timetable in our hands. We want an exact chronological breakdown of the events that will climax in the end of the age. Well, unfortunately, the Scripture doesn't fill in all those details for us. Daniel wanted to know. He asked the the figure that appeared to him, what shall be the outcome of these things? And you know what he was told? He was told, go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Basically, he said, the figure told him, it's none of your business, Daniel. That's what Jesus is going to tell his disciples in this discourse as well. He's going to tell them the exact timing of the things the angels in heaven don't even know. Even himself, he himself doesn't know, at least not at this point in his humanity. In other words, while the scripture gives us a rough outline of what's going to take shape at the end, there's supposed to be a sense of mystery to these things. You really shouldn't read passages like the one we're about to encounter and go, oh, I get it, I can see exactly now how it's all going to shake out. No, you're supposed to scratch your head and go, huh? Oh, yeah, I don't understand that. That's kind of confusing. Because God means for the full disclosure of these things to be hidden. He wants the future to be at least partly veiled in mystery. He wants to give us enough knowledge about the future to serve His purposes for us, but not enough that we can figure it all out. There's still a level of suspense to everything, even after we've studied the Scripture's predictions. Because while the Scripture tells us a lot, it doesn't tell us everything. So that's one reason why I've hesitated about this passage. This can be a very confusing topic to understand. And if it's a confusing topic to understand... That also means it's going to be a very hard topic to explain. That's part of why I've dragged my feet over the past couple of weeks, actually, before engaging in this passage. I've wanted to take some extra time, not only to make sure that I understood fully what I think Jesus is saying here, but also so that I could spend a little bit of time reflecting on how to explain all of this to you. The second reason why I've hesitated to teach the Olivet Discourse is because at first blush, this can seem like a very irrelevant topic. I think we probably all understand that our faith in Christ is to be lived out, right? We have been justified. We've been reconciled to God uh, so that we can worship Him in action, right? We are called to be like Christ. In this sense, ours is a very practical religion. It affects the way we live. What this means is that from week to week, I feel the pressure to deliver practical messages aimed at changing the way you live. I'm constantly trying to apply theology. The challenge that comes up in a study about end times is that it can seem very impractical. You're not going to find six steps to a healthier marriage in Matthew 24. The Olivet Discourse isn't going to inform you about how to be a better parent or employee, at least not directly. The fact is, the study of end times can actually be one of the more transformative subjects that you can study in Scripture. And and I think you see this reflected in the ministry of Paul, for instance. You study Paul's writings, and I think one of the things that sticks out is just how early he broached this topic with the churches that he founded. It would appear that Paul spent, for instance, only a few months in Thessalonica. And yet by the time he writes them, just a few months later... He's already discussing such such topics as the rapture and the day of the Lord. In fact, as he discusses these things, things like the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he even says, 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That would indicate that Paul was already giving a full, detailed account of last things very early on in his interactions with the Thessalonians. Point is, Paul saw this as a subject so important that he was apparently discussing it among the first topics that he addressed with his disciples. It wasn't some detached, abstract, faraway concept. No, it was something that he saw to be foundational to the Christian life. But I doubt very many of us feel that way. After all, whatever you think about whether or not Christians will be present to participate in the final events described here in Matthew 24, the fact is, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus predicted these things. At the very least, that can make it seem like there's a pretty good chance we'll die before any of this happens. That can make it feel like a distant and impractical topic to spend much time on. And then you add to that, that there's little doubt that the purpose of these final events actually has more to do with the nation of Israel, with Jews, than it does with the church. And it can seem like there's very little that we can take away from this study that will change our lives today. For this reason, you see many take a more apathetic approach to this topic. Some will even go so far as to say that it's really pointless to spend much time trying to figure out what's going to take place at the end since the Bible doesn't really lay it out for us too clearly and it doesn't really matter anyway since we'll just find out what it's like when it happens. But we can't do that. We cannot do that. Listen, if God took the time to tell us about these things and so often and in such great detail, then it has to be because He thinks it's important for us to know We can't just brush this subject off as irrelevant. I think if we do, then it reveals a gross deficiency in our understanding of the Christian faith because the overwhelming testimony of the Scripture is that this subject matters, that it's actually meant to change us. And it does. It does change us. I can tell you that personally, when I reflect on all the sermons that I've heard since I've become a Christian, and I ask myself which had the most enduring and impactful effects on my Christian walk, one of the very first that comes to mind is a sermon series on the book of Daniel by S. Lewis Johnson. All it was was an explanation of what the book of Daniel predicted about the end, and I can tell you that it so revolutionized my thinking that the prophet Daniel quickly became one of my favorite men in all of the Scripture. I even ended up naming my first son, Daniel, in part because of the impact of that book on my life. So I understand that this can feel like an irrelevant topic, but please hear me when I tell you that it is not. This subject matters a lot, but it probably doesn't feel that way. And that's part of the reason why I've been disinclined to teach the Olivet Discourse. So in light of the two reasons I just explained, what I'd like to do before fully unpacking Jesus' answer to the the disciples' question is spend a couple of weeks introducing the topic. Next week, I'll tackle the first issue that I mentioned, which is the complexity of this topic by by giving an overview of what is known as eschatology. During that message, I, I just want to introduce you to some key concepts and passages that will set the table for our discussion over the next few weeks. Uh, part of that uh, will include an introduction to some key terms. And, and this is the first term that I want you to become familiar with, eschatology. Uh, whenever you hear that suffix ology, 
right? You should probably recognize that we're dealing with a particular field of study. You've probably heard of fields like biology, which is a study of living, living organisms, or psychology, which has to do with mental health, or sociology, which is the study of social structures and organizations. Well, eschatology is the study of the eschaton, which in Greek means last. It's a study of last things. When Jesus begins the Olivet Discourse, the disciples already have a lot of background knowledge about eschatology. They've already, they're already aware of some key concepts that Jesus is going to build on in the course of this message. What I'd like to do is bring you up to speed by introducing to you some key eschatological terms and passages that will make you ready for that topic, this message. I think that'll help you make sense of what we're about to discuss over the next few weeks, especially if you've never studied this topic before, and I understand that many people have never studied this topic before. But before we do that, what I'd like to do with the time we have left here this morning is briefly explain to you why, why a study of eschatology matters. You can think of this kind of like a, like a pre-application of the topic. We're going to be talking about things over the next few weeks that from a distance may seem irrelevant because they're not directly applicable in the same way that a message like the Sermon on the Mount would be. And my fear is that this can make you think that what we're about to study is not worth the effort it's going to take to unravel some of the more complex aspects of this topic and you just kind of check out and unplug from what we're about to talk about. I don't want that to happen. My hope is that by showing you up front why this subject matters, it might whet your appetite and encourage you to be excited and engage on this topic. So that's what we're going to start with this morning, by looking at four reasons why a study of eschatology matters. Just so you know, I think I actually came up with something like six or seven different reasons why it matters. So we're not going to look at you know, this isn't a comprehensive list. We're just going to start with four, and I think that should be sufficient for our purposes here this morning. And just to be clear, there are reasons that, are, that these are reasons that apply throughout our study of Matthew 24. In other words, I think these reasons should always be in the back, the back of your mind. If you find yourself ever wondering, in other words, why Matthew 24 matters, these should be the first things that pop into your head. Again, I want to give you just four reasons. That why I think the study of eschatology matters, and the first reason is this. Number one, a study of eschatology keeps us from following after false Christs or Messiahs. Let me repeat that. A study of eschatology keeps us from following after false Christs or Messiahs. Now, I don't have a ton of time to spend on this issue because I doubt too, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this issue because I doubt too many people in here are probably tempted to go running after a false Messiah. Such figures are... are really kind of even few and far between in our society today. However, given that this is one of the core applications of this concept in the New Testament, I don't think we should ignore this reason altogether. So let me say it again. One of the real benefits that comes from studying eschatology is an increased immunity to false messiahs and even false teachers. I think a couple of months back, I shared my encounter with a member of, a, of the World Mission Society Church of God uh, with you. If you're unfamiliar with that group, it's a cult that claims a membership of over 2.7 million people worldwide. Uh, for some perspective, that's about 200,000 more members than the Church of the Nazarene. Okay, So this is not an insignificant group, right? Well, one of the core doctrines that they teach is that their founder... 
who is a South Korean man by the name of An Sang Hong, they teach that he is the second coming of Jesus Christ. An Sang Hong had predicted the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom in 1988, before his death in 1985. An Sang Hong uh, had based his prediction on passages like the ones that we're going to study here in Matthew 24, which he believed taught that the Messiah would come back 40 years after the reestablishment of Israel in 1948. After he died, his followers started praying to An Sang Hong. They stopped saying the name Jesus Christ and started to speak of Christ An Sang Hong instead. And then they awaited his arrival in 1988, only to be sorely disappointed. However, this didn't put an end to their cultic beliefs. Instead, shortly after his death, they made uh, official their belief, not just that An Sang Hong was the Christ, but that a Korean woman by the name of Zhang Gilja is the bride of Revelation 19 and 20, and that she should be worshipped as God the Mother. And this is what they continue to teach today, that, that, that God the Mother resides here on earth and bids the Christ, An Sang Hong, come. As I said, I had an extended talk with one of the members of this cult when I lived in Los Angeles, and it was only afterwards that I realized I'd actually encountered another member of this group a couple of years before that. They seemed to have a heavy presence on some of the college campuses there. Interestingly enough, in Matthew 24, Jesus warns that before the end, false Christs will come. And he tells his disciples how to discern these imposters, saying, then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe. Believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Essentially, Jesus says there's going, there are going to be clear signs in the heavens when He comes. We find out just a couple of verses later that when He comes, He's actually going to come riding on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And in this way, His appearance at His return will be so obvious that no one could possibly miss it when it happens. It's like the lightning shine, you know, you know, cracking from the east to the west. That's what it's going to be like. Everyone's going to know it. In other words, those 2.7 million followers of An Song Hong have been woefully, woefully dece- deceived. And if they could only discern the clear teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, then they could see it. This appears to be at least a significant part of the reason why Jesus and the apostles provide detailed information about His second coming. They do it so you won't be fooled by impostors or false prophets claiming that Christ has come or even predicting specific dates about when He will come. The information they provide is specific enough to dispel all those rumors so that you are not easily misled. That's one major, major reason why a study of eschatology matters, and it's probably an underrated one at that. It keeps us safe from false messiahs. The second and a third reason is this, and I do want to look at these two reasons together because I think they go together. Reason number two, a study of eschatology humbles us by reminding us that our culture is not the pinnacle of human civilization. Let me say that again. The study of eschatology humbles us 
by reminding us that our culture is not the pinnacle of human civilization. And then reason number three, a study of eschatology transforms our priorities so that we are consumed with the things of the kingdom of heaven. Once again, it transforms our priorities so that we are consumed with the things of the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) I have to tell you, I wish that I had time to fully develop uh, these points this morning because when I tell you about the impact that the book of Daniel made on me, this is what I'm talking about, reasons number two and three. But there's just not too, there's just, there's just too much here, and, and we still have one more point to go after this, so I'm going to have to just go over this quickly for now. And, and I'm going to hope, I'm going to hope that you can kind of catch more of my point as we go further along in our study over the next few weeks. Point is, keep these ideas on your radar as we go forward. A study of eschatology really almost begins with the book of Daniel. Uh, that's where God first begins to outline in chronological order the events that will precede the end of the age. The Olivet Discourse, the book of Revelation, they both are going to build on the foundation that was laid in the book of Daniel. Well, one of the things that God disclosed to Daniel was that from his time on, there would be four, or you could almost say five-ish great kingdoms that would appear before the end of the age. This is perhaps best symbolized in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about a particularly strange statue in Daniel chapter 2. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw this statue and its head was made of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the abdomen and thighs of bronze, its legs were of iron, and its feet a mixture of iron and clay. And then there was this uncut stone that entered the picture and it smashed the feet of iron and clay into pieces. Nebuchadnezzar was perplexed by the dream, and so he called his wise men to both tell him the dream and to interpret it for him to explain what it meant. No one was able to do this. No one saved for Daniel, who was helped by God, and he interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. In this interpretation, Daniel explains that the head of gold, that's Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. It, Daniel explains, is the greatest of the kingdoms. After this, he says another kingdom is going to arise, which Daniel says is inferior to Babylon. That's the significance of the silver. It's not as valuable as the gold. This, we learn from later visions in Daniel, is the kingdom of Medo-Persia, which would conquer Babylon in Daniel's lifetime. The kingdom after that, the one of bronze, so less valuable even still, that's the kingdom of Greece. And the legs of iron, the least precious of the metals, that's the nation of Rome. The feet of iron and clay, that's the last kingdom, which appears to be an even more profane version of the Roman Empire. And it's smashed to bits by this rock that turns into this great mountain and fills the whole earth. That, we discover, is the coming Messianic kingdom. So there are four, you could perhaps say, even five great kingdoms to come from the time of Daniel to the end. There's Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a a degenerated form of the Roman Empire. And this last part is significant as it relates to the Antichrist. I'll explain who the Antichrist is in greater detail next week, but he comes at the very end, and we learn from Daniel that he arises from this degenerate form of the Roman Empire. The rock that comes and smashes his kingdom to pieces, the uncut stone, that's Jesus. Now there are two significant points to take away from this vision. First, 
It shows us that the Roman Empire has never completely died. Apparently, it still exists in a weakened form even today, and it will until the very end of time. And second, that empire, the Romans, which is widely lauded as the greatest empire that the world has ever seen, is depicted in Daniel as the very least of the kingdoms. In fact, in a later vision in Daniel where the four kingdoms are depicted as animals, the Babylonians are depicted quite regally, I would add, as a lion with eagle's wings. The Persians are depicted as a bear with three ribs between its teeth. The Greeks as a leopard with four wings on its back. But the Roman Empire is described simply like this, quote, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. The idea is that it's a brutal and warlike kingdom, one without beauty, but with amazing power. And all it does is trample down and destroy what it comes in contact with. It's so ugly in its violence that there's not even an animal that can describe it. It's practically a machine. So what a study of eschatology tells us is that the Roman Empire still exists in some form and it's the ugliest and most despised of all the kingdoms to follow Nebuchadnezzar. And I hate to break this to you, but guess where America lines up historically? It's with the Roman Empire. It would appear that we're part of that mixture of iron and clay. Western culture, European culture, lionized the Romans after the fall of Rome. Even after the fall of Rome, you had the Holy Roman Empire rise up in its ashes in Europe and claim lineage to Rome for the thousand years that it existed. And then after that, Hitler himself tried to revive it with his Third Reich or Third Kingdom, which he claimed would last for another thousand years. Titles like Kaiser and Tsar, the name of European kings, they're just derivatives of the title Caesar. After Rome fell, you had all kinds of European nations wanting to claim that they were the extension of what they saw to be the most glorious kingdom that ever existed on the earth, the Roman Empire, and they possessed the military might to go along with it. You want to talk about the power to trample down and conquer and destroy? Look no further than England, which at one time had colonized more than a quarter of the earth's surface, and of which it was said, the sun never goes down on the British Empire. You add along with that the colonization of other European powers like France and Spain, and it's fair to say that at one time, Europe had practically conquered the entire earth. You look at the power to make war and the desire to conquer, and you not only discover the likes of men like Napoleon, of whom many in his day believed was the Antichrist, but you also have two world wars claiming the lives of untold millions in the span of less than 50 years. Yes, there you see the beast with the iron teeth that tramples down everything in its path. In America, we who are founded by European powers, we fall right into that lineage. I mean, the very idea of a democratic republic was seen as a revival of Greek and Roman ideals when our nation was founded. And it's reflected in all the great pieces of our architecture in our nation's capital. You know, I'm currently reading a biography about George Washington, and one of the things I find striking is that, of, that all the art, great artists of his day wanted to depict Washington as a great Roman general by dressing him in a toga. It was even an incredibly common thing to liken him after the Roman general Cincinnatus because of the parallels in their lives. As a matter of fact, after the war, they even started a society known as the Society of the Cincinnati, which was a, a veterans group, um, of which he was the president. 
In other words, I think it's fair to say that if we were to trace the lineage of Rome down throughout history, we're not an unaffiliated party. We, along with every other Western nation, were founded upon the ruins of Rome. And and don't misunderstand me. This is not to say that Christianity has not had a positive influence in our society and, and even on our government that puts us in a better position than what the Romans were in Jesus' day. We're most definitely reformed Romans. But all the same, I think it's, the fact is unescapable. Our society is still largely built on Roman ideals. That's where our lineage goes. And that's humbling. That's humbling. To realize that if a man like Daniel were to visit our nation today, he would not see a great nation, but a violent and ugly one. He would look upon our modern gladiatorial contests in our other forms of entertainment, which revolve primarily around violence and sexual immorality, he would look upon our fascination with the accumulation of material things, our desire to possess, to own, our desire to even exert authority over others, all for selfish gain. He would look upon our veneration of physical beauty and youth over wisdom and substance, upon our endless quest for entertainment, And perhaps most of all, he would look upon our anti-authoritarian attitude, upon our regard for defiant individualism, self-reliance, and self-determination, and upon our practical atheism, which seeks to create laws that only seek to advance our own happiness and comfort rather than the glory of God, our obsession with our freedoms instead of our obligations to God. And he would be repulsed. He'd find it disgusting. That, my friends, will make you reassess the things you value. And make you wonder whether the things that you love and pursue in life, the things that you just assumed from birth are right and good, whether they are more in line with God's purposes or with Antichrist's. I can still remember not long after studying the book of Daniel, standing at a gas station, filling my car up, when this other car pulls up, and the music's blasting, and it's proudly exalting all kinds of violence and sexual immorality for everyone to hear, without any shame whatsoever. And it dawned on me... I'm in enemy territory. Like, I've, I've been redeemed out of a base and godless society to go back and to serve as an ambassador to those around me, telling them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what a study of eschatology will do to you. It will remind you that you don't belong here. It will remind you that Christ's kingdom is not of this world, that your citizenship is in heaven. And it will help you understand your role and purpose in life perhaps better than any other doctrine. You add to this the fact that a study of eschatology will remind you that the world around us is incredibly transitory. It reminds us that this world is passing away and that once it's all said and done, you will stand before Christ and be rewarded in accordance with how well you spent your time and talents here on earth while you were here. And I don't know that I can think of any other doctrine that encourages sanctification quite so much as this one. I guarantee you, the more you study eschatology, the more you will become convinced that the most important thing in this life is to become like Christ and to spend yourself in the advancement of His kingdom. It's an incredibly sanctifying doctrine. Let's look briefly now at the fourth reason why a study of eschatology matters. Reason number four. A study of eschatology helps us approach the calamity and turmoil that surrounds us with assurance and calm. It helps us approach the calamity and turmoil that surrounds us with assurance and calm. This appears to be the primary application of eschatology in Scripture. 
Uh, that's why I've saved it for last. It's last, but it's certainly not least. You look at the discussion of this doctrine throughout Scripture, and at almost every point, one of the central themes tied to it is hope. Hope. It would seem the reason why Daniel was so concerned about the end was because he couldn't understand how God's chosen people could be dispossessed of their land and trampled down by pagan kings. The reason he was given this glorious vision of the future was to ease him of distress by showing him that God had not forsaken Israel, that evil would not win, that righteousness would one day rule over the earth at last. You think of the question that the disciples ask here in Matthew 24, and I think it's probably fair to assume that they were motivated by the same thoughts. Again, Jesus is talking about this devastating judgment that's about to fall on Jerusalem. And not only he, but it would seem the disciples as well are so stricken with grief that the first thing they want to know is, when is this going to end, Lord? They're looking for the end of Israel's suffering. And so they ask, tell us, what's going to be the sign of your coming? When are you going to relent? They want relief. And so Jesus explains it to them. It'll look like this, he says. When you see this happening, lift up your head. It's almost over. And it's the same in Paul's writings. His discussion of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 is aimed at comforting those who have lost loved ones by showing them that they had not died in vain, that they would participate in the resurrection with them. Likewise, he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2 to comfort the Thessalonians by saying, this can't be the day of the Lord yet. Because all these other things have to happen first. This should be the really big thing that we take away from a study of eschatology. Not so much much a precise chronology of every single event that's going to take place. But an assurance of the fact that God is in control, that evil will be vanquished, the righteous will reign, and when it's all over, we'll get to participate with Christ in His kingdom. In other words, we don't have to worry if things are going to get worse in the future because we already know it most certainly will get worse in the future. Yes, as this passage is going to explain, all the bad stuff we see going around us, guess what? It's just the tip of the iceberg compared to what's going to happen at the end. So yeah, it's going to get bad. Guaranteed, it's going to get bad. But as they say, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. It is going to get worse, much worse, but then after that it's going to get much better. Far, far better than anything any of us has ever experienced. So in the end, we really don't have to worry about the future. You know, the final fate of this planet doesn't depend on who wins the next presidential election or on international treaties restricting the emission of greenhouse gases. I mean, sure, catastrophes can happen, Right, And we can most definitely contribute to them. I'm not taking that away. But all the same, the world isn't going to end in these ways. God has already told us how the world will end. He explained it to us in places like Matthew 24. And this means that as the turmoil of this world swirls around us, we can rest easy knowing that we already know the end of the story. And Jesus wins. God wins. The future is firmly in His hands, and nothing is going to change it or redirect its course. Thus, we we can be a people known for their unswerving hope. This is the fourth and final reason why I would encourage you to study eschatology, because it can help you approach the calamity that surrounds you with assurance and calm. 
So there's four reasons why I think a study of eschatology can be helpful. Perhaps you have some more. Uh, if so, we can discuss those tonight at 6. At the very least, I'd encourage you to keep these four concepts in mind as we begin to wade into the Olivet Discourse over the next few weeks. Once again, next week, I'll introduce you to some key concepts and passages I think are critical to a successful navigation of this topic. And then after that, it's full steam ahead. I hope you're excited for the beginning of this chapter. I know I am. Uh, in the meantime, let's close with prayer.